Well, good morning. My name is Dan Meyer. I used to work here. <laughs> and I've been away for uh, three months or so on a glorious sabbatical. And uh, I'm not only glad to be back, I'm really glad you took me back. Uh, if you're just visiting for the very first time uh, here today, uh, my apologies that you're going to endure me this morning. And for those that had experienced the wonderful teaching and preaching of this past summer, I know uh, you know, as I've discovered, what great hands you've been in all along. Uh, I am really thrilled to have this time today to kick off this new series, although Marshall did an outstanding job setting the stage for what we're going to be talking about. But as we prepare to do that, uh, let me just invite us to bow our heads for just another moment in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have brought us here to this place today. Uh, we know that you see uh, that we are in lots of places every week. But we dare to believe that there is in this place at this time a sacred appointment that you have for us. So give us, Lord, ears to hear, uh, hearts to to feel, and wills to respond to what it is that you say and do in us during this time we have. Not, Lord, that we would find our own lives simply getting a little bit better, but that your transforming work in us would move out through us towards this world that you so love that you sent Jesus to be its Savior. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have a lot of heroes in the life of this congregation, people who I look to uh, as models in my own uh, Christian journey. And uh, one of those is a, a layman by the name of uh, Bill who served on the board of our uh, trustee board for many, many, many years and has uh, struck me along the way as really one of the most impressive, consistent disciples of Jesus I know. I think back to a conversation that I had with Bill after one of our board meetings some years ago in which um, he essentially pulled me aside and it became very quickly clear that he was asking for my uh, blessing to leave the board of trustees for a season, maybe for a very long season. And I say, what gives, Bill? And he says, well, you know, I've just turned 55 and, um, and I want to make a shift in my energies right now. And I say, well, okay, well, tell me more about that. And he says, well, I I've always had this dream that I might play on the senior amateur golf circuit, and I've hit the age level where I can actually do that, and I want to really just go all in on that. So this was, for me, I'm trying to kind of maintain an engaged face, an awkward moment. Right? Because I'm thinking, really? I mean, I'd heard that Bill was quite a good golfer, probably one of the better country club players in, in the area. But I'm thinking to myself, you're going to, like, leave behind this really good thing you're doing in the life of our church, and you're going to set your job aside for a period of time, you're going to go do this, this thing? I'm thinking, wow. I mean, is this a good decision that, that you're making? Uh, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll get a little bit better by doing this, but is this really going to be that useful? So then I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's not really my place to pour cold water on a guy's dream, you know, and, uh, and maybe this will be good. Maybe he'll fine-tune his game a little bit. He'll, he'll play a few local tournaments. He'll discover that he can't really get a whole lot better than he was, and he'll be back to attending church board meetings in no time. So I said, Bill, you have my blessing. You go and do that. 
What I did not understand that particular night as we were standing there after the board meeting was what Bill really meant when he said, I'm going to make a shift. I'm going to make a shift in the application of my energies. I was surprised a little bit later when I discovered that Bill had constructed a full-scale golf practice facility in his basement uh, in which to, 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 to tune his game. And that he was getting up now at 4 o'clock in the morning to, 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 to do core exercises and devotions, actually spiritual devotions as well, to improve the other sense of his core. I, I was amazed when I discovered later that, that Bill had actually given up alcohol in order to improve his steadiness and his focus on his uh, particular ambition. I was inspired when this guy who I knew other people actually came to for coaching, for tips on their game, was actually out there still seeking professional coaching on his performance. But what absolutely blew me away was what happened in the next months to Bill's game. A year later, Bill Sheehan Jr. won the United States Senior Amateur Golf Championship. He then traveled over to Great Britain and won the British Senior Amateur Championship. And then he came back to the United States and won again the U.S. Senior Amateur Championship. Year after year, Bill Sheehan Jr. of this congregation was the number one senior amateur golfer on the planet. Take this in. On the planet. And then, Bill made another shift. And he walked away from that, and he re-energized himself and refocused himself on trying to become the best uh, dad, husband, uh, family member, friend, and church leader he possibly could be. In fact, one of the things he applied himself to, uh, he and his wife Lynn, a couple years ago, was co-leading the Take Roots initiative that brought about such tremendous growth and transformation in our church and through our church out in the wider world. Now, I'm telling you Bill's story today because it really strikes me that it has something to teach us about life, and not just about life in the most limited sense, but in the broadest sense. It has a lot to teach us, as we'll discover when we look at the scriptures in a minute, about the kind of life to which Jesus was calling us, uh, to which Jesus wants us to make a shift ourselves. Uh, I, I think... That, that Bill's story is useful to us because it reminds us that in almost every significant area of life, if we want to really see ourselves having greater impact, even becoming even more proficient or successful, it involves making a purposeful shift. Think about this. You've seen this in your own experience. You, you learn to, to shift your weight from, from one foot to the other and your athletic performance uh, improves uh, significantly. You, you learn to shift your focus from being known by other people. I want you to know me, hear my story, hear me talk, to, to, to listening deeply to their story. You make it your priority to get to know them. And the quality of your relationships and your influence on other people goes up significantly. 
You may shift your investments from one asset class to another asset class and then see your net worth uh, arise. You shift your, your time and your energy from maybe trivial pursuits to more transforming kinds of concerns. And as my friend Bill Story suggests, the quality of your life and your ability to speak into the lives of other people goes up. The big idea here is that if you want a, a better result in any important zone of your personal human experience, then you don't just take a stab at it, you make a purposeful shift. You make a shift. Are you getting this? Does that make sense? Is this a concept that, that registers for you? Do you have a pulse? Can you answer that question? Yes. <laughs> Say yes, Dan, that, I get, we get this, okay. Good, okay. So God gets this too. No surprise, right? He made us. He understands who we are and who we can become. And God understands the particular shifts that it's most important for us to make in life to maximize the potential he has given to us for human life. And and, um, over the course of these next several weeks, we are going to look at four particular life-changing shifts that Jesus wants us to make. And we know that these are the ones he wants us to make because anytime Jesus wanted to, to really get to a human being or a group of human beings, to get beh- behind their defenses and, and mess with their way of thinking and being in this world and shift their attitudes and their orientation to life, anytime Jesus really wanted to do that, he told a parable. That was his preferred methodology for for getting to people and and helping them think more deeply and see things in fresh ways. And we're going to look at a bunch of the different parables that Jesus told, some familiar, some not so familiar, and I think you're going to really enjoy this ride, this journey that we're going to be on in these next weeks. The first of the crucial shifts that Christ calls us to make, and in fact the one that the other three shifts build off of, is the shift from dabbling to discipleship. If I could just change the metaphor for a moment and have you think of a gear shift. Most of you are far too young to even know what a gear shift is, but some of the oldest people in the room will remember a day when all of us did a lot of this gear shifting. And we know that, that, that you don't go anywhere fast until you, till you shift out of neutral and into first gear. And that first gear is the platform from which all the other shifts will develop. Well, that is what the move from dabbling to discipleship is. It's the first uh, gear, in a sense. Now, I'm going to guess that most of us are probably pretty good dabblers. Uh, We do a little bit of this, and we do a little bit of that, and we don't do any of it all that deeply or too devotedly. You are probably the exception. You're probably one of these really marvelous people that goes really deep in one or two things. But a lot of us aren't. Diversification, fragmentation uh, is the, the spirit of our age. And a lot of us are just kind of very much out there doing all kinds of different things at a somewhat shallow level. And because we express enthusiasm for these things we're into and we post them on social media and we are articulate about describing how cool these things are, other people might not have figured out that we're not all that deeply into that particular thing or into all of those different things. Um, And we don't think much about that. 
maybe. I, I for example, I'm a, I'm a dabbler at golf, true, true confession. I had a little more time this summer, so I decided I'd dabble a little bit more than I normally do. I got out to the practice range a few more times. I took a couple of lessons. I got out with a, in a couple more rounds. Uh, I got a couple of new clubs. I bought some very fine new golf shirts. Um, but I did not make significant progress like to play like Bill, okay? Because I just didn't put all that much of an investment in it. And, and the funny thing about dabbling is that it leads to more dabbling. Because you see, when you're a dabbler, you don't see huge fruit from your efforts. And so you just move on to the next thing. I, I took a tennis lesson, <laughs> right? <laughs> And Rafa has no worries that I'm going to challenge him anytime soon. Um, so I don't know if this registers at all with you. Again, you may be the exception to everything that I'm talking about. But I do think this is the pattern for a lot of us. Uh, we grow accustomed to a life of fairly limited engagements and therefore fairly limited results, which leads to more engagements. And, and it's not just in hobbies like Golf, for example, we do this. We do this in some really big, important areas of our life. I mean, like a bunch of us, we have been hanging around a Christian community for a whole lot of years, and we aren't very good still at forgiveness. I talked to a couple of people after the last service, and they just came up, and they said, man, I am still struggling so much with, with forgiveness. And even though we've been at it for a lot of time, we're so, some of it still not all that good at mentoring younger people, at building a really deep, intimate relationship with our spouse or, or with uh, friends beyond a surface level. Uh, some of us, again, we've heard a million messages about this, but we're, we're, we're not really deep in terms of generosity with our resources or in sharing our faith. I mean, it's amazing. I don't want to have hands going up how many people have been around church their entire life and cannot point to a single person that they have helped come to faith or helped come to know Jesus. Um, because we kind of have been dabbling at all of these things and not devoting ourselves to these things in a highly focused kind of way. And that is why Jesus says, in effect, make a shift. I want you to make a shift. At one point, he says, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I don't want you to have this kind of shallow experience. I want you to have a deep, wide, rich, multicolored kind of life experience. I want you to know life abundant. And so a major part of Christ's teaching, if you are a student at all of, of his words, is he's saying, I don't want you to let things just stay the way they are today. In fact, a lot of his parables are aimed at sort of nailing, in an sometimes uncomfortable way, the way things really are. And we should be looking at and evaluating, do I want it to stay this way? And Jesus is calling us through these parables to, to make the change. In fact, the very word repentance, which is so often on the lips of Jesus, is all about a shift. You know, every time you see that word repent, think shift. 
It's not, you know, repent because you're so horrible. It's shift because what I have for you and want for you is so awesome. And so this is much of Jesus' messaging. Go from dithering to devoting. Go from dabbling to discipleship. And watch how your potential uh, unrolls from there. So, do you know what a disciple is? Could you, do you have a working definition for that? Um, the, the word in the New Testament, the Greek language, is mathetes, and it, and it means, means literally, as closely as I can get to it, imitator. Imitator. A disciple is not a person who's just an admirer of someone. They are an imitator. A disciple is someone who is committed to getting better by aligning themselves to the pattern of some master. And whether that your discipleship is in golf or in basket weaving or in spiritual character, um, it's all about uh, who is that master you're looking to. We sung about that a little while ago. And, and how is that experience, how are you moving to align yourself to, to what that master does? Um, one of the most amazing uh, spiritual masters I've known uh, was a professor I had in seminary by the name of Dallas Willard. And uh, Dallas um, had so much wisdom to share. He wrote incredible books. But more impressive was the way he just walked through the world, the way the guy walked through a room, the way he interacted with people. He's the most Jesus-like human being I've ever been privileged to know. And Dallas once said that, that a disciple is somebody who catches a vision for something better, develops an intention to pursue that vision, and exercises the means necessary to achieving it. To, to develop our potential, we need vision, intention, and means, V-I-M, and I once heard Dallas say, if you want to grow to your full potential, then pursue vim with vigor. I hope you'll take that with you from, from this today. I hope you'll even post that one. Pursue vision, intention, and means with vigor. It's one of the most crucial strategies for growing to our potential in almost any area of our lives. Dallas didn't just make that stuff up, though. Dallas learned it from the one he was imitating. Uh, he learned it from Jesus. Have you ever noticed how often in the parables of Jesus, he's talking about vision? First piece of it, vision. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. Somebody asks a question, he says, oh, well, the kingdom of heaven is like. Anytime you hear that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, think the world we want to be in. The world that would, would be if everyone was under God's sovereign, loving influence. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And in Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Again, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. In these and a whole bunch of other parables that we'll encounter, 
Jesus is essentially saying, I want you to open your eyes and see the possibilities of life. I want you to see it. Catch a vision for what is valuable, like a treasure in a field, or what is beautiful, like a really magnificent pearl, or what is uh, precious and, and important, like relationships. So many of the parables are, are, are dealing with, with relationships. I want you to focus on these things. It's almost as if Jesus is already understanding, and I think he does, he is God, that, that, that life is gonna get more and more distracting, more and more confusing, uh, we're going to have more and more people pulling at us and telling us to you know, buy this, go here, be that, that he knows if we don't focus ourselves on a particular vision and pursue it with all we have, we're going to wind up someplace down the road that we never really wanted to be. And more importantly, we won't be the kind of people we want to be. So don't just drift. Don't just stumble your way through life. Set your sights on great things great things that God has for you or wants for you, and which you, I'm going to bet, in your clearest moments, know you want for yourself. And, and let me just smile and say, this is a great time to be doing that. Because we are at the start of a kind of a whole new year. A new cycle of life is starting up for all of us, right? We're going into the fall. Uh, hopefully we had a little bit of refreshment this summer. And, uh, and we're ready. So ask yourself now, by next year at this time, what do I want to be different about my life? You know, what, what, which, which of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, humility, passion for justice, whatever, which, which of those things do I want to have be bigger in me? Or, or, or what's the, what are the changes in your home life that you want to see happen? Or what is the change in your relationship with your sense of intimacy with God himself that, that you want to alter? And what, what, what is that like? And what do you want to be different about your career? And you know, just paint that vision, color it in, write it down. Start to try and find ways of describing it and talk about it with other people. And, and, and turn it over to God and ask him to help you get there. But it is very important that you develop the intention to pursue that vision. Uh, don't just be one of those people that stumbles across something and goes, ooh, that's, that's, that's beautiful, or oh, that would be neat. Uh, be like that guy who, who found the treasure in the field and went off and sold what he had to come back and buy it. Be like that person who found that pearl of great price and, and, and went off and liquidated his savings in order to obtain it. In other words, don't just wish that you had a deeper relationship with God or with your spouse or with other people in this world or a greater influence in life. Don't just wish that you had a better GPA or a lower handicap or a finer career. Don't just wish. Wishing's for dabblers. Disciples don't wish. They walk. They walk. They, they get very intentional about pursuing the vision. In Luke chapter 14, we read that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Do, do you know that Jesus got pretty big crowds following him? And, and I mean, they would get into the thousands sometimes. And I'm sure there were a lot of wishers there. Oh, I wish you'd solve my problems. I wish you'd feed me again. I wish you'd heal. There were a lot of wishers. But when Jesus saw the crowds getting too large, he 
very dependably would sharpen the edge of his teaching. We see this many times in the Gospels. You hear about how huge the crowd is, and then you watch Jesus getting really hard-edged in his teaching, as if to say to the crowd, do you understand what's involved in being a disciple, in, in entering the kingdom? It's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like going through a needle, the eye of a needle, and you're a camel. I mean, it's hard, hard stuff, says Jesus. And so in this particular uh, parable, Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow. Wow. And then he says, uh, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. No, Jesus, I'd like you to be the one that carries the cross. Isn't that what you're about? I've seen the picture of you and the cross thing. Me? A cross? That's what he says. That's what he says. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation with the other, when the others are still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. In other words, he will count the cost ahead of time and not get into something he can't handle. In the same way, says Jesus, those of you who do not give up everything you have can't be my disciples. Not because I wouldn't have you, but because you wouldn't be doing discipleship. You'd be doing dabbling. Now, we know from the other teachings of Jesus, the countervailing teachings of Jesus, he doesn't really hate families. In fact, from the cross, one of the last things he did was say, hey, John, take care of my mom. <laughs> Jesus loves families. So he doesn't want us to really literally hate families. Jesus doesn't want us to literally you know, throw away everything we have. He, he teaches elsewhere a lot about how we can creatively manage our resources. What Jesus is doing here is speaking in what's called hyperbole. Why hyperbole? Because we are so glaze-eyed towards his teaching. Some of you are actually already doing your shopping list right now. You've checked your text many times already because you, you're going, oh gosh, this is another, when does this get over? Why didn't he stay on sabbatical? Jesus speaks in these parables in hyperbole to shake us up, to get our attention, to have us going, what? What are you talking about? What are you really saying? Because he loves us. He, he wants to help us see something important. What he's trying to say here is that discipleship requires an intentional commitment. You, you, you can't just catch a vision. You've got to now be intentional about pursuing that vision, and that's gonna involve some costs. How many of you had a chance to watch Coco Goff play tennis in the last little while? You know who she is? She's a 15-year-old African-American phenom who's gonna become the, one of the greatest athletes of our time. Uh, and she's made amazing progress at the recent US Open. Let me just ask you, do you think she became this kind of athlete because at age five, when she took a tennis racket in her hand, she said, I wish I will become a great athlete? No, no, no. Do you think my friend Bill got up at four o'clock in the morning because he just wished he might be 
a decent senior amateur golfer? Do you think the, that, the, that the, the great spiritual athletes that you've met, the people who just seem amazingly able to handle adversity with grace, who, who handle conflict in this remarkable way, who seem to influence the lives of others in this unusual fashion, do you think these people are that way because of genetics? <laughs> do you think so? No, I, I promise you, that is only the way dabblers would think. Disciples know it's because of, of, of somebody intentionally pursuing the vision, developing a commitment to this, becoming this kind of a person, and, 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 and taking up, and this is the third part, the means required to develop. In his closing comments uh, in the most famous message Jesus ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and, and thinks about them as they're driving home from church. That's not what it says, is it? Everyone who hears these words of mine and, you say it with me, puts them into practice. Yeah, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I would just say that when we put things into practice, it doesn't mean we get it right the first time or the second time or the third or the fourth time. Um, but even the verb sense there in the original language that talks about putting into practice is, is the sense of, it's a verb that has to, it's a tense that has to do with continuing action, of keeping at it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and and seeks to continually try to put them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. One of the things I don't like about Jesus, he never used illustrations that you could possibly imagine happening in real life. You couldn't imagine a big storm coming any place, could you? Right? And he goes on in this story, and he says, yet the house did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Why didn't the house fall when the hurricane swept through? Because the homeowners inside were wishing it wouldn't. Nope, nope. Why didn't the house fall because the hur when the hurricane swept through? Because they got lucky and the storm got downgraded to category two? Or went to a different state? No. It's because long before the storm came, the homeowner exercised the means. He made a decision to build in a certain kind of way. And she or he chose to build their house on the rock and bolt themselves on the rock. And I will be blunt. We are living in a world today that is more about sand than about rock. We live in a dabbler's world. We're, we're living in a world where the messaging that's coming at us is that, you know, there's, there's just a whole range of free options about how to build the house of your life, and, and you can build it anywhere you want, in any way you want, and, and your own personal choice and your own personal feelings, your own sincerity about that, that is the supreme thing. Not that they aren't important things. They are important things. Your feelings, your preferences, your hopes, your aspirations. Yes, those are very important. Are they the supreme thing? No, they're not. Not if you actually want a life that's flourishing. They're not. It does matter where you build your life, how you build your life, what it's bolted to. It's not true that any ground is as good as another as long as you're sincere. 
Ask the guy who built his house on the sand how that worked. And you will know that even nature itself is proclaiming the truths of God. So if I could impart just one huge transforming truth to you as we start this season ahead, it would be this one. Because I've been heavy so far. I'm gonna get a little lighter right now. So hang in for a few more minutes. God loves you. He really does. He loves this whole planet and its people. And that's why he came in Jesus. That's why he left the glories and comforts of heaven and became a human being and why he was willing to sacrifice his time with people that were very hard-headed and not particularly kind and gracious compared to the place he'd come from. That's why he laid down his life on a cross for us because he's all in for us. He's committed to us. And he wants the best for us. He cares about how we're building our lives. My friend John Ortberg puts it like this. He says, to love someone is to desire and to work toward their becoming the best version of themselves. The one person in all of the universe who can do this perfectly for you is God. You've got a lot of people trying to make you into their best version of you. You've got in God somebody who is trying to make you the best version of you And he can do that perfectly because he has no other agenda, writes Ortberg. He has no unmet needs that he's hoping that you can help him with. And he knows what the best version of you looks like. He made you in your mother's womb. He he, he had a plan for you before the foundations of the world. And God's primary will, writes Ortberg, for your life is not the achievements you accrue. God's primary will for your life is the person, the person you become. God is at work every moment to help you become his best version of you. And he's working at that in your pleasures, in your pains, in your storms, trying to help you become the best version of you. So as you go into this new year ahead, catch a vision of what that better version of you might look like. Think about that. Give some attention to that. Maybe it's to become a a great athlete like I've described today. Maybe it's to become a dramatically better student or family member or friend. Maybe it's to excel in your work life or in some other sphere of life. All of those things could be part of his intention for you. I don't know. I don't know. But please catch. This is the most important part. Please help others catch, especially our kids catch, that the the most important vision of all, and that is the vision of becoming the kind of person that Jesus is. The kind of person who, if given suddenly a world championship and the the headship of an organization and, and profound leadership in a family's life, would know how to handle that with grace, wisdom, or who, who, if they were going along towards that kind of future, ran into all kinds of storms and adversity and was being beaten up by that, would not be destroyed by that and would know how to handle that too. Jesus wants us to become like God. The call of the Christian life is to become little Christs. In fact, the word Christian literally means little Christ. People not just admiring Jesus, but imitating Jesus, 
people like him. That's the treasure. That's the pearl of great price worth committing ourselves to. God wants us to become people who can handle adversity and prosperity and popularity and uh, criticism and conflict and resources and opportunity as beautifully as Jesus did. So, here's the action step I want to suggest. Develop your intention and exercise some means to become that person. And, and, and I'll give you just a very simple, concrete challenge. Just pick one of any of the historic means by which people have tended to grow in Christ-likeness and, and go all in with it for three months and just see what happens. Maybe, you know, worship is one of those means. There's something about staring into the face of God and opening our hearts to God and, and, and asking him to speak to us and uh, laying out our, our sins and our fears and, and offering prayer and praise. There's something about worship that is transformative for people that are really in it. And the average American churchgoer goes to church 1.7 times a month now. That is not enough. Maybe for you the call is to, to, to make a more regular practice of, of communal worship. Uh, or maybe you got that down. Maybe the issue for you is that it's been a long time since you got into one of those intimate small groups where, where, where you tell the truth to each other and you challenge and love up on each other and pray for each other and uh, study the Bible or some Christian curriculum together. Maybe, maybe the thing is to go to the Grow Station today and just ask, how do I get involved in one of those groups, those communities, those discipleship gatherings that are going on around here and just give yourself to that just for three months and see what happens. Or maybe for you, the, the, the practice is a daily devotional, and you're, you're, gonna, you're not gonna just take a stab at it. You're gonna really go with it, and you're gonna, daily, you're gonna be reading scripture. You're gonna be meditating on the, on the inspiration of some great spiritual master, and you're gonna be applying it to your life, and you'll just do that for, for, for three months. Or servanthood could be it for you. That's another one of the great means of, of Christian growth. You know, we could use a lot of hands around here just to help make the church of of Christ go. Uh, we could use a lot more help. You could go on, on the uh, mission trip that we're embarking upon to break through at the end of this month if you chose. You, even better, you could go out into your workplace and onto the sporting fields and other environments you enter thinking of yourself as an ambassador of the kingdom and resolving, I'm going to lead. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to love people in Christ's name in those places in a better kind of way than maybe they've seen before. Uh, it doesn't matter which of these means you exercise. Pick one, go all in with it for a period of three months, and see what God does with that. I think that if you make a shift from, from, from dabbling to discipleship, a deeper kind, um, it's going to have fruit to it. You may not become the senior amateur this year, uh, full disclosure, but maybe something even more dramatically life-changing will happen for you or through you. This I know, if you really make this shift that I'm talking about, God is gonna work powerfully uh, in you, with you, through you, through that commitment you make, because Jesus has promised that I have come in order that you might have life and have it even more abundantly.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and may the Lord add his blessing to this teaching and thinking and practicing of his holy word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this time, for the uh, power of your Holy Spirit speaking through your word. Uh, Just bring from the seeds that have been planted the fruit that you want to produce. For we pray this in your loving name. Amen. Amen.